Welcome again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who wants to hone their skills at critically thinking about the public health literature. I'm Matt Fox, Professor of Epidemiology and Global Health, and we are here today in the Boston University Godly Studio. Today in our first segment, our Journal Club segment, we are going to dive into a paper that reviews the evidence around artificial sweeteners and impacts on cardiometabolic health. In the second part of the podcast, our deep dive segment, we will talk about how conflicts of interest affect how we judge a study. And then in our third segment, our amazing and amusing, Don, that is what it's called, we'll talk about things that blew our minds or just made us act like fifth graders. <laughs> and before we get started, we want to take a second to remind you about Population Health Exchange, Boston University's School of Public Health's resource hub for lifelong learning. Find out more at www. .populationhealthexchange.org, where you'll find this podcast, as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. Now, let me introduce you to the group. I am joined today by Dr. Chris Gill. Chris? Hi. Good uh, afternoon, Matt. How are you? Who are you? I'm a, a professor, associate professor, excuse me, here at the Department of Global Health at the School of Public Health, and I'm an infectious disease guy by training. Excellent. And Dr. Don Thea. Don? And I'm just an older version of Chris. How older, much older? And improved. <laughs> uh, uh, professor of Global Health at uh, Boston University School of Public Health, also an infectious disease doctor. Excellent. All right, let's get into our first segment. So we are taking on a new paper that's been widely covered that reviews the evidence on something we all care deeply about, the relationship between artificial sweeteners and cardiometabolic health. So for anyone who doesn't know, artificial sweeteners are these widely used products that people use to ruin coffee. <laughs> Uh, and this was an article published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. How's it going, eh? <laughs> and it's entitled Non-Nutritive Sweeteners in Cardiometabolic Health, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trials and Prospective Cohort Studies. So before we get started, let me give you a couple of the headlines. So NPR says, Artificial Sweeteners Don't Help People Lose Weight, Review Finds. And then my two favorite ones from The Mirror, Diet Coke Could Be Making You Fat. Fat in all caps, artificial sweeteners linked to risk of weight gain, and Fortune says artificial sweeteners won't help you lose weight, according to a sad but important study. So before before we get into it, Chris, why don't you uh, explain to everyone what this study was about, what they did? Oh gosh, well sure. Um, and I, if if I if I can digress before we regress. Um, this study had a particular resonance for me because it it, it hit because one of these used artificial sweeteners all the time. No, no, but I had a I had a summer of artificial sweeteners back in college. Um, I was didn't we all? I was subletting uh, an apartment, <laughs> and one of the guys I was subletting with, whose name was Peter's something or other, his girlfriend's his girlfriend was the daughter of a vice president of NutraSweet. Oh boy! And she had he had given her excuse me. A, a, a box, sort of like a two and a half foot by three foot crate filled with those NutraSweet bum gumballs that were sent out to everybody in the United States when they were launching NutraSweet. Uh, Aspartame, for those who are not aware. Yep. And so we had some like 50,000 gumballs in little individually wrapped plastic things. And God, we attempted to eat them all over that summer. We didn't make a, a dent in that box, but by the end of it, we were so sick of aspartame oh, sure. and NutraSweet. And it's like the whole apartment was covered by little wads up of multicolored gum. Oh, gross. Stuck to everything. And you didn't was, grow any additional appendages It was, or it was horrible. No. And so it is also like a dose, to dose uh, toxicity study, like a phase yeah, one yeah, clinical yeah, trial, yeah. small number of adult <laughs> volunteers uh -huh. overdosing nasty. on aspartame over the summer. Oh, gross. We live to tell the tale. Anyway, oh. have you had 
any sense? Uh, I'm I'm sad to say that I have acquired a, a very keen ability to identify aspartame in almost microscopic doses. I Yikes. can spot it immediately like, because the taste like is so, with cilantro. so aversive to me. I just don't like it now. And I anyway. So is there a conflict of interest here ha- having Chris <laughs> there review may this paper? Be. There may in fact not be. like aspartame. To be clear, um, we're half an hour into the podcast and okay, you haven't sorry. told us what it's about <laughs> okay. yet. So this, this is a meta-analysis. A meta-analysis um, is um, uh, a, a discipline in clinical epidemiology around which there are many complicated courses that you can take, including at the School of Public Health, which are very excellent, by the way. Um, Plug but Mike I, Lavalle. But I, Mike Lavalle, a very excellent professor and friend of ours. Uh, however, uh, if, for those who are not a really familiar with a meta-analysis, it is a highfalutin term for taking the average of stuff. The average of what? Of a lot of stuff. Several different studies. And on the, the idea, same topic. On the same topic, right. So like, you know, you might have like 50 studies on aspirin and whether it prevents strokes, but they're all done with like 25 people. And, and so none of them individually has enough statistical oomph because the sample size and event rate is so low that you can never really tell whether it worked. But by lumping them all together, you can kind of pretend this was one giant study. But the difficulty is that often these little in- component studies that you try to lump together are not that similar. And so the, the ability to lump is 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 lump is is uh, is complicated by the heterogeneity, the the differences in the studies that make them unlumpable on some level. Unlumpable, I believe, is um, a term that is a my tumpable. parents <laughs> used for me when I was a kid. <laughs> so mm-hmm. this is a a a uh, a study which is a meta analysis looking at the effect of of consumption of sugar substitute. Um, uh, through meta-analytic techniques, and they're looking to see whether this affects a whole range of of, uh, clinical outcomes, such as body mass index, or whether you're more likely to get diabetes or weight change. And they had to lump in two different groups because some of the studies that they found in this meta-analysis were randomized controlled trials. Which we like. Which we, we, we like. We tend to think that they're less you know, susceptible to bias and the issues of causality are more clear, et cetera, et cetera. And then there was a much larger number of observational studies, i.e. cohort studies. Which we always, already, always, which we, we like it well when they're done well. And so this, this article actually gives us a chance to throw, you know, to take pot shots at two of our favorite problems, our villains in clinical epidemiology, which are bias and causality, all in one go. Now, without even looking at this, the, the results of the study, you might say that the results from the randomized control trials lumped together would be a little more persuasive than the observational studies lumped together. Mm-hmm. And they kind of acknowledge this, um, but they also point to a previous meta-analysis that had been published two years ago where they did exactly the same thing. They had a bunch of randomized control trials and a bunch of observational studies, and they lumped them. And the randomized control trials found that on, on average, when you had you know, sugar substitutes and therefore we're not having as much sugar in your diet in an experimental setting that people tended to lose a little bit of weight. Mm-hmm. Um, or not much. Least, not but, much, but, but they, they, they lost weight. Uh, whereas in the observational uh, group, the observational studies, the exact opposite effect was seen that they tended to gain weight, which I hate to say is what Donald Trump is, is gunning at, mm-hmm. which is this issue of why were they using uh, sugars, sugar substitutes in the first place, which is probably because they were trying to lose weight because they were gaining weight. Yep. And so the use of aspartame would not necessarily be the cause of loss of weight, a gain of weight, so much as the reason that you were using aspartame. So it's reverse causality. So, so to be clear, you, you were not endorsing Donald Trump's opinion I, so much as you were getting at I the am idea not. that we have this confounding problem that when we look at observational studies of people who use 
sugar uh, sugar substitutes, there are reasons that they do that relate that relate to weight gain that aren't necessarily just randomly distributed in the population. They are specific to people who are trying to lose weight or change weight. And that's called confounding. Confounding. Right. Yep. It's a great example of it. So these guys decided to repeat the meta-analysis the other guys had done, pointing to the fact that when they were searching for the studies to, to include and therefore lump together, that they... Uh, maybe use a set of search criteria for their and a strategy for searching for papers on online databases that would have eliminated them their ability to find some key critical studies and also that several published papers had been published subsequently which could you know add more oomph statistical oomph something that we, oomph. Uh, like we teach our students more, about like so, 100,000 more so they redid this analysis yeah they redid this analysis, and basically what they found after you know looking at the RCTs and the epi studies, randomized controlled trials, and the observational epi studies separately, was that in the randomized controlled trials, they slightly lost weight or maybe didn't gain any weight, but yep. the effect was close to zero, but trending towards lost a little bit of weight, i.e. exactly what the other guys had found. Whereas with the observational studies, they tended to gain a little bit of weight. And in fact, quite significantly, they gained weight exactly like the other meta-analysis had yeah. found. And so even though these two meta-analyses were sort of like done, you know, one was done to, re to replicate and correct the errors of the first one, in fact, they found exactly the same, they thing. Found the same thing. But their interpretation, the spin on this, was where it differs. Because in, in the current paper, they say, well, you know, sometimes randomized controlled trials don't agree with observational studies, full stop. Not saying because observational studies are prone to bias well, and reverse causality. Well, yeah, let's give, come back to that. Because there are maybe the RCTs reasons. are just wrong. I know. I'm other just reasons. saying, I'm just saying reasons. but it was a very curious statement in my view. Okay. So basically right. that's what they found. All right. So we, so we have essentially a, a meta-analysis, a review of studies that puts the data from all the different studies that have been done together, tries to give us a summary of the evidence. And what they found was the trials found a benefit, slight benefit in terms of weight loss, but or, not or much no, in terms of- Maybe no effect. Possibly no effect, but at most a, a little bit of a benefit in terms of weight loss. And the observational studies showed some harm. And we got to sort that one out. All right, done. Give us your give us your take on this study. What's your uh, what's your assessment? Uh, I think that there's a number of really interesting aspects to this study. Um, for one, I I had difficulty with uh, co uh, doing a meta analysis on a series of RCTs and a series of observational studies um, because I think that's mixing apples and oranges, and then even within the oranges, it's mixing navel oranges with. Kumquats. Kumquat oranges are... Or, really? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, because That's the best you can come up with <laughs> for another kind of orange? Valencia? Valencia, Clementine? there you go. Clementine comes to mind? Um, yes. Where, where do you shop? Um, Amazon. Okay. That makes sense. So, so as far as the RCTs are concerned, um, they were mixing a whole bunch of uh, RCTs that were being done for different... Uh, for different circumstances, like some of them were for to look at hypertension, some some of them were to look at obesity um, or diabetes, and I think it's really not fair to be able to, th to to try to throw all those different kinds of RCTs into one meta analysis. And I think the same thing is true for the observational studies. Um, in their abstract, they say they say um, observational data suggests that routine intake of non-nutritive sweeteners may be associated with increased BMI and cardiometabolic risk. I think they could just as easily say observational data suggests that increased BMI and cardiometabolic risk may be associated with routine intake of non-nutritive sweeteners, which mm, is right. sort of what Chris was saying. Reverse causality. Re reverse causality. 
Um, there were a couple of other things that I thought were interesting. They buried the, 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 what I liked about it is they made an attempt to um, put in place some quality measures. So they, mm -hmm. they tried to assess in a systematic way the quality of the individual studies, and they used some fancy uh, meta-analysis um, meta techniques. Um, I, I don't know that they were convincing in, in terms of uh, mm. allaying my concerns about the heterogeneity or the quality of the underlying studies. They, but there was a, there was a real kicker in there, and, and the kicker was... It was a big kicker. ...that um, those studies that were sponsored by industry did show an effect on decreasing weight loss in comparison to those who were that Meaning were they lost not, more weight. They lost more weight versus those that were not sponsored by industry. So that is an immediate red flag in my mind, and immediately raises the question of conflict of interest. Seems suspicious. Which we will, I agree. Which we will get into in detail, but I agree with you. That certainly threw up some some red flags for me. Um, so so let me get let me ask you guys this question because. Chris, you have this 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 uh, seemingly aversion to observational studies, particularly when compared to randomized trials. And in this case, I think you have some reason to be. By the way, let me let me let me give my take. By the way, which is, I think this is a pretty well designed meta analysis. I think for what they were trying to do, I think they did a a, a really nice job of it. Minus, I have some quibbling with their conclusions in the same way that Chris did, because I do think that we have this problem of potentially the the reverse. I don't know if it's reverse causality or if it's confounding so much as it's, you know, we know that people do things for reasons that are associated with other behaviors and outcomes, and that makes it harder to see cause and effect when it's truly there. But I also uh, am never clear when we're looking at observational studies versus randomized trials what question the studies are answering. It seems to me that the observational study, so the which is where the majority of this evidence comes from, looks at the effect of what happens when you're taking these substances all the time, or you're taking them never, or you're using them for whatever. No idea what that means. Does that mean I'm taking them in substitute for sugary substances? Am I taking them in addition to sugary substances? Am I substituting you know, calories one for another? Am I keeping the tech calorie count the same? I have no idea. With a randomized trial, I at least know what they intended to do because the randomized trial has a protocol where we tell people, I want you to do this and stop doing that. doesn't mean people follow it necessarily, but at least I know what the question is. There's going to be a, an average higher exposure to one than on, on, the, on average in the other. And but, I don't know but, what they're doing here. But the trouble with dietary studies is that you, you, you just you really can't plan to have a randomized controlled trial exist for a long enough period of time to really be able to see the outcomes of interest. Six months or nine months just really isn't enough time to adequately be able to address the question of weight loss um, over over you yeah, know so over an important relevant, period, period of time and loss. the intake of, of of these substances. Okay, but so that, and and that's a really good good point. Is it um, does it does it imply that there's nothing meaningful that we can learn from dietary studies? In other words, I mean, what if if I think about it, I always want to turn this into public health messaging. You know, if we're doing these studies, presumably we're doing it because we care about improving people's health. What's the what's the message say from the, if you believe these trials actually showed some benefit is the is the message everybody should start using uh, aspartame should I use it all the time you should use it for everything should I you know I don't I don't know exactly what the message is and I don't know you know is is telling people to do that 
going to improve their health over a lifetime, or is it just going to improve weight loss over six months and then it's going to go back to normal? I, I I'm unclear on what the actual question is. I mean, I think I think it, it suffers from some of the same problems that most weight loss or dietary studies suffer, and that is that even if you are able to, under experimental conditions that are very very controlled, show that a particular intervention decreases um, promotes weight loss. The real question is, is that weight loss going to persist and is it going to be have a meaningful effect on an individual's yeah. health status? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's, there's another way of looking at this too, which was what was the, the average effect size that they're, they're measuring here? And I think this gets to your question of, of like, what is the clinical relevance? Because with a meta-analysis and you get, you know, more statistical oomph, it means you can fire smaller, find smaller and smaller differences. Yep. But in the in the absolute differences that they report here, they're, they're really small. I mean, for example, um, you know, with a change in the BMI and the randomized controlled trial meta-analysis, the difference was 0.37 uh, points on the BMI scale. So the, between a 23 and a 23.3. Uh, so you know, sort of objectively, these are identical, almost identical. I mean, they're not statistically identical, but clinically, the difference between 23 and 23.3 is, is, is not important. So, so I do, and I do, I absolutely agree with what you just said, except that people do often remind me that uh, small differences mean probably very little to the individual. But on a population level, if we could bring the BMI down by, you know, X amount, it would have some population level impact, but I, I take your point and I think you're right. Um, the second the second issue that I, I take with trying to interpret a, a study like this is, again, and if you assume that you believe the results, which we have reason to believe uh, may be questionable, particularly for the observational studies, is who is this for? Uh, does this tell us that if you are, uh, if you already have an elevated BMI, that you should use this to reduce, you know, to, to, to control weight? Does it apply to everyone that everyone should suddenly, you know, if you have a normal BMI, should I still start taking, uh, aspartame instead of sugar in my coffee? Uh, shouldn't have either, by the way. I, I think it's completely unclear. And in part, it's, it's, very complete, unclear. it's completely unclear because of the heterogeneity of the study, studies that went into this meta-analysis because, because they were completely diverse populations. There were mm -hmm. some obese, there were some not obese. The observational studies seem to all start out with a particular BMI, but, but again, they, they were for different purposes. So I think that coming to those conclusions is, is, is problematic. No, I agree. Okay, so so taking it all on balance, so now you've got a, a, a pool of observational studies that seem to show uh, some harm, not massive harm, but some harm in terms of, of, of BMI, and randomized trials, which showed possibly some benefit, maybe not. But given the concerns that we have around the confounding problems, around the reverse causality, around all those uh, interpretations of what the results actually mean, where do you, where do you fall on this? Do we, should we be encouraging people to use artificial sweeteners? Um, well, my, my, my take home from this is that, uh, you know, if you are, um, if you're looking for the bottom line message, the choice of whether to use uh, sugar substitutes or not is almost irrelevant. That it doesn't have a big, it's like the worst case scenario is that the observational trials are correct, in which case the BMI rose by 0 0.05 
which is like almost nothing. And the worst case, the best case scenario is that the RCTs are right, in which case it has a trivial effect on weight loss. Yeah. Like, so it might be slightly helpful, but if it's harmful, it's barely harmful. Okay. So although, although there were, it there were probably some... doesn't matter at all, is, I guess is what I took away from this. Yeah. For weight loss. But I think one of the things that we haven't mentioned is that they looked at some of the, uh, the other cardiometabolic yep. outcomes, like the development of diabetes, and buried in the, in the results are that they found a 14% increase in the development of diabetes among people who um, actually did not use uh, in the in the control group in comparison to the intervention group, and um, when they sorry, hang on, you're telling me that it's worse or better to use artificial sweeteners in terms of diabetes? Worse, it's worse. If I take if I take artificial if I use artificial sweeteners, I'm going to more likely to develop diabetes. Right. The relative risk was 1.14. Yeah. And that's from the observational studies? Yes, because they yeah. didn't have any uh, sufficient long, long-term follow-up. But they did the a RCTs. but they did a fancy calculation where they where they um they they determined what the publication bias is. Mm. What, in, what is in, publication in bias? In which case they take into consideration all the studies that weren't published that likely sh- that showed no effect. And when they threw that into their analysis, the the um, the, the risk ratio um, came down considerably. And in fact, I think it became non-significant. Um, so so even even those findings, I think, are a little bit questionable if you take a step back and you look at the, kind of the totality of how these studies were done. No, I, I, I would agree with you. I, th- I think there's, there's no question that you've got to take both the, the trials and the observational studies with a grain of salt. For the trials, uh, there's just these, this blaring concern about conflict of interest that we'll talk about in a minute in our second segment. Um, and then with the observational studies, I, I, there's just this potential for for bias that hangs around. Now we didn't we didn't specifically uh, go into the details, but there are actually they do list for each of the studies what they were able to control for. And the thing that that really sort of stands out for me is, uh, you know, most of these studies were actually able to adjust for age, sex, and BMI, so they account for that. But nothing for body composition. Uh, very limited amount of data for. Um, you know, amount of sugar consumed. So a lot of things that you'd want to know about uh, to be able to, to to get at causation in an observational study. So my, my take is is pretty similar to Chris's. I mean, I think they have done the best that they could with the data that they had in hand. But I do think that there are some serious limitations to this data. And my take on message is I'm not, I'm not too concerned. Uh, I'm not real concerned that there's much of a, a harmful effect. I'm not convinced at all that there's much of a beneficial effect. And unless I see more convincing data, I'd say, you know, probably not much going on. It's a giant shoulder shrug. Yeah. Meh. Yeah. You know, there's, a, there's an interesting... Is there, is there a scale of meh? Yeah, this is, this is a, 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 an 11 on the meh scale. Meh. This um, is a meh, meh. There's there's an interesting spin on this too. Um, if, if you know, and we're going to go into conflicts of interest. Maybe we'll just talk about conflicts of interest. All right, do you want to transition us into that? Let's let's go into co- yes, yeah, section two. Let's go into into part two All and talk right, about conflicts of interest. Let's get into it because there's some about, juicy ones here. There are some big ones. So in our second segment, what we want to do is we want to talk about what what conflicts of interest are uh, in in the medical and public health research. Uh, and figure out how we use information because conflicts of interest are supposed to be declared. They aren't always, but they are supposed to be declared in uh, medical research. And uh, we have to use that information when we try and determine whether or not these studies were, in fact, valid studies. So, um, and, and as we said, three of the trials that were included, and there were only, uh, what, seven trials total? Seven, yeah, seven RCTs. RCTs. Uh, sorry, seven RCTs. 
uh, that were included, three of them were, were sponsored by industries that would have a stake in this. So that was uh, Nestle, uh, the American Beverage Association, and NutraSweets paid for three of these studies. <laughs> and the in American, addition to which they were small studies. I mean, very, who, who funds the American Beverage Institute, by the way? Uh, Chris Keel? Coca-Cola. Oh, shocked. <laughs> shocked to learn this. Um, and so the question is, do you know, so, so start us off by just telling us what a conflict of interest is. And then how you how you deal with when you read an article and there's a conflict of interest? What do you what, what do you do? And what do you just throw up your hands, or yeah. do you get any useful information? Well, I think it's really I, th- I think it's really it's a, it's, a, it's a very tough concept because con- conflict of interest really exists all over the place. I mean, even individual researchers have conflict of interest when they conduct a particular study. That's why there are DS data safety and monitoring boards. That's why there are institutional review what's boards. What's a data safety and monitoring board? So that's an that's an external body that evaluates your study and and uh, the results of your study and determine whether there has been harm or whether there has been an, I- uh, an imbalance in the effect that is so beneficial that you need to stop the study and offer that beneficial effect to the control arm. And is that done in all studies? No, not at all studies. It's done in intervention studies. Um, in trials. In trials, yeah. right. Um, but there, there, there's a natural tendency for even the investigators to want everything yeah. to go well because everybody's invested in this. So conflict of interest is when you may have um, you may get additional benefit um, for a positive trial result, but it's most notably um, uh, applied when um, there are there is financial gain. And we went and we went into this in great depth in one of the other podcasts where we talked about Wakefield and and the autism um, vaccination immunization. Um, study where he had a as as severe a conflict of interest as you could imagine. Uh, yeah, though I, w- I would point out that that conflict of interest does not necessarily lead to fraud. Conflict no. of interest often leads to uh, behavior, unintentional behavior change. Right, so it's not it's intentional. More yeah, right. It's not necessarily bad, and it doesn't necessarily need to be prescribed. But it, what it does need to be is acknowledged so that the consumers of the information can evaluate whether the, it, there was an effect. The trouble is that, that, that there are times when it actually does have an effect on the outcomes in ways that you don't necessarily see. And if, you, if, if like in this instance, when you know, there are three RCTs, small as they were, that were, sub, that were supported, sponsored by one of the manufacturers of the intervention, and they all were beneficial, you, a red flag has to go up in your mind. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you're saying is is absolutely right, Don. And I think the you know when when we say there's a conflict of interest, it, it has this tremendous pejorative connotation, but it need not be so. It can be it can be subtle. It can be unconscious. Um, I mean, in, oh, I as 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 researchers with a hypothesis that we're trying to test in the randomized control trial, we have a vested interest in in the outcome. We have a belief in our hypothesis, yep. and so that's why we do placebo and blinding. Uh, in our randomized controlled trials because we don't trust ourselves. We recognize we have an internal conflict of interest and we are guarding against that. And how does does a placebo, which is essentially a sugar pill and a blinding, which essentially is... Well, in this case, it would be aspartame, but... Aspartame, okay, yep. Yep. Um, But, uh, I mean, we use a, a, a... we use a placebo uh, so that we can measure, we can disentangle the effects of of how patients expect an intervention to work or how doctors expect an intervention to work on their patients when they're measuring this outcome from um, from the actual effects of the, of yep. the treatment under study. Yep. And then we use blinding because we are afraid that if the doctors are expecting to see something that they will, you know, over overcast the good news and 
undercast the bad news in their enthusiasm. And it need not be with malicious intent. I think it's more just human nature. And I think there's a there's an example of this, a subtle one, possibly in this meta-analysis, because, you know, they they were, you know, reading their discussion, they were a little disappointed with the results because it tended to show that the RCTs were, if anything, better than, you know, that showed a slight benefit, which is, I think, not what they wanted to see because they were reacting to the previous uh, meta-analysis by these guys, Murray, mm-hmm. uh, Miller, and Perez. Yep. Now, the interesting thing about this is that since they, they have a, a, I think, a a belief that the observational studies may be more umfy in this case. Umfy meaning better? More believable. They they want the observational studies to be correct. I I, be- I speak fluent guilt or <laughs> umfy. They, they want they are they want the observational studies to be correct. And so they downplay the fact that the RCTs were were randomized uh, trials. the randomized controlled trials showed a positive benefit. But it goes beyond that because in their selection of the studies, remember this previous meta-analysis had 15 randomized controlled trials. And the second one, which you know they were doing in response to that, only had seven. What happened to the other eight? What happened to the other eight? Now the the they cast a wider net in terms of how they sought for these studies, you know, and, and they found a few more, but they also kicked out um a whole lot of randomized controlled trials because they narrowed it down by applying very specific inclusion criteria, which you have to do. But it also eliminated over half of the randomized controlled trials from consideration and therefore, by definition, gives more weight to the observational studies. And di- because and you've di- eliminated the competition. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was sort of subtle, but that's what that is, in fact, what they did. And it did. didn't get rid of the underlying problem because they remained very heterogeneous. And it's still, it's still right. They were still heterogeneous, and they still showed a general trend towards being better so than are, sugar. Are you saying there was a conflict of interest for the? Uh, reviewer, the, the the people who conducted this meta-analysis? I'm, I'm saying yes. I think there was a subtle doctrinal bias that maybe crept in there in terms of how they decided that they were going to filter out the studies that they were more suspicious of. So you're saying that they basically uh, put, through the methods cooked, the, cooked the input Maybe. of the data to, to come up with the with the, the finding that they wanted. It's subtle. I mean, I, uh, I think it, I think I'm we go a little bit too far. I, wanna, I, mean, I wouldn't so say sure. they cooked the data. I think it's I think it's much more. I think subtle you're than this. you're wearing your reading into things glasses. Uh, maybe so. Maybe so. However. On the original meta-analysis, yes. there was a much more overt conflict of interest, yes. which was, it was accompanied by an editorial by this guy, James Hill, who basically thumped the table and said, this meta-analysis, the, the Murray and the Miller and Perez one. That, wait, wait, the original one? The original or the one. one yep. thumped, you know, thumping his table, you know, his, his hand on the table and saying, this Taking proves sh- that sugar, you know, sugar substitutes should be routinely recommended for everybody who wants weight loss. And that the evidence is now unambiguous, which is like, and you're like, whoa, that's... Quite a strong interpretation. And you are going to tell me that Mr. Hill has some... And at the end, and I'll just read his his disclosure statement, it says the author has received grant funding from the American Beverage Association and from the Coca-Cola Company. And we now that the we actually know that the American Beverage Association is funded by the Coca-Cola Company. So it's not and the Coca-Cola Company, it's the Coca-Cola Company and the Coca-Cola Company again. He has also served as a consultant for the Coca-Cola Company, General Mills and McDonald's. Hmm. Um, Potential so, conflict. So a, a, a pretty interesting conflict of interest. So I would this, say. Is an, this is an example where the concept of transparency may not necessarily mitigate the effect of somebody's very strongly held opinion put forward in a very overt way as an editorial to an RCT. Because in very small print, at the end of the article, we find out that he has this conflict of interest. But how many people are actually going to read that small print at the end of the article? And a lot of people are just going to read 
the title or say, oh, wow, that editorial really was supportive of this. So it must be a great study. There you go. And so so would you say then that, that if it's sponsored by industry, we just... We just disregard it. We throw no, it out. Of course not, but it's 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 tricky, you know. And when you're trying to find an editorialist to to talk about an article, you have to be very careful because you know this this is where people. It's like reading the abstract. People often only read the editorial, or only read the abstract yep. of the paper. Yep. They won't That's read the true. fine print. Uh, so I, I was not specifically referring to the editorial. I was referring to the original studies. So you've got three of the seven randomized trials that were done in the meta-analysis were sponsored by industry. Would you just chuck those out? Do you put any weight into them? No, I would put a big question mark next to each of them and say, you know, these are studies. And then you would look at them, you know, you probably want to pull the papers and say, were they blinded? You know, was it double blind? Were the, the observers blinded as well as the participants? They were, I can tell you there, there was not a lot of blinding going on. It's very hard to blind some, as you point out, you can taste the difference you between the difference. aspartame and, and sugar, which makes it very difficult to blind people as to whether or not they were taking aspartame. Almost sounds like a marketing jingle, doesn't it? It's <laughs> writes itself, doesn't it? <laughs> Now, hang on, hang on, hang on. So, 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 if that's the case, then why do we, why do we, why do we let industry sponsor studies at all? Why don't we just say we're not going to journals aren't going to publish any industry sponsored studies? Well, it, it, it presupposes that we have any any say in the matter. <laughs> I assume that the three of us here make the rules. Is that not true? Yeah, I mean, who, who's oh. going to who's going to who's going to enforce that? It's not going to be the FDA. It's not going to be the Institute of Medicine. The journals. The journals could get together and and, and do Why that. I, I suppose, but you know, I probably there's a fair amount of research that results in publications that they want to publish. So it would be you know, results. To, sorry. It would be to a certain extent decreasing decreasing the amount of, of oh, papers that, that they, that they could, could publish. publish. Yeah, and so that's sort of choking off their. You You're know, saying their, they have a conflict of interest. They have a vested interest in having as much science produced as possible, and industry does support a lot of a lot of scientific research, and also well, publication of scientific if, journals. If, if yeah. in fact it's if, if in fact we're all just going to disregard it, then is that money well spent? Is that useful? I, I'm not saying I, I, I'm not saying that I do throw things out simply because it's a industry sponsored trial or because the what if it's a uh, a trial that is run by a university but the funding comes from the industry? That would provide provide a little bit of space, and you might say, okay, the conflict of interest has been one step removed, and yet it is not completely removed. It's not completely removed. In fact, I think to the to the to the average person, they uh, would see that as no different. That where is this researcher getting their money from? Therefore, they have a vested interest to see the results make their funder happy, so they can get more funding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that is the case, but I am saying in subtle ways that probably, you know, invades the the discipline. Yeah, and it's a slippery slope. You know, we all know from the conflict of interest forms that we have to fill out when when we do any kind of publication or get any kind of um, research dollars. There, there are gradations of support that they can give you. They can just give you cash money and turn around and never be involved in the study. They can help you design it. They can help you write it. I mean, there are there there are a whole different number of ways that industry can very slyly affect the outcome of the study or, or the spin of the outcome of the study. Yeah, and I hate to say it, but they can they can even design the study, run the study, analyze the study, and write the study and, and put your name on it. Uh, right. That and has offer, been offer, known. Yeah. Hopefully that is happening less and less. Uh, hopefully. Oof. Well, that's pretty upsetting. Uh, have, have any of you had to declare conflicts of interest ever in your research? Uh, yes. Um, so I recently wrote a paper that, you know, talked about the, the 
uh, sad fate of the meningitis vaccine I worked on. And because I was working for Pharma at the time and had an absolute conflict of interest, I declared that, uh, you know, I don't have any stocks, but, you know, I could not say I was disinterested. I took it very personally. Yeah. So, you yeah, know, I was upfront about that. Don, you? No, no, you I never, actually, I've never gotten any kind of industry money. So even though I fill out those damned conflict of interest oh. forms all the time. I've ah. never, I've never declared a conflict of interest. How about you, Matt? No, none at all. But I have to, I like, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking, did I forget to declare something? I think that's just my, uh, my paranoia. Checked your mutual funds lately. I have not. What do you think's in there? <laughs> you know. Oh boy. Tobacco money, gun money. Oh, I hope it's not. All in there. I really hope I'm not uh, supporting those things. Pharmaceuticals I can live with. Other things I'm not sure I can. Maybe we can get these podcasts sponsored. Ooh, I, Got any thoughts? <laughs> who, who, who is the who is the obvious sponsor for this? The Donald J. Trump Foundation. Oh, good lord! Oh, please. I would just assume pack it up. Oh, no, I would pack it up. Yeah, well, you, you're looking for a reason to get out from day one, so there's there's an easy one for you. So conflicts of interest, we're Conflict for them or against interest, them? Uh, I can say, you know, it's hard to say. I think we're against them. Okay, I think in summary, how can we're it be for them? them? It was a little elliptical. I think it was. All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on then to our our third and final segment, our favorite of the uh, of the podcast, our amazing and amusing. Here we want to highlight some of the things that make us enjoy our jobs even more than we already do. So, uh, Don, you want to start us off with what what is the amazing and amusing, but you refer to as the wacky science. You want to give us some sure. give us some wacky science. I think this is wa- I think this is wacky science. Um, it always is. So I've got an article that um, I found that. Um, falls into the category of why did they do this study? Oh, yeah. And how is this actually going to be helpful in terms of um, improving world health or pushing back the, you know, the boundaries of ignorance? Nonetheless, I found the, the, the results really interesting. So it's a paper published by Yang, Pham, Chu, and Hugh in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, right. which is a very good journal. Um, And the title of it is Duration of Urination Does Not Change with Body Size. So what what these investigators wanted to know was whether there is variation in the duration of urination in mammals based on their body size. Oh, mammals. Mammals. All mammals? People well, included they, in they, mammals? They, yeah, oh, absolutely. They stratified it into mammals that are less than three kilograms <laughs> and mammals that are over three There's kilograms. There's no radio way to show the way that Chris is looking at you right now. <laughs> I'm, 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 yeah. I think you're squinting, <laughs> scowling. Um, in any event, they're, they're, so what they did is they, they, um, they um, did high-speed videos of <laughs> A whole series of animals urinating. Um, 16 animals um, were observed urinating what? at a local zoo, and they got 28 videos off of YouTube of, of animals urinating yep. and did a whole analysis of bias. this. I see a bias and they problem. Ca- and they came to the conclusion that all mammals urinate with, when they have a full bladder. They all urinate for more or less... 21 seconds. No, I don't buy that. Regardless. That so, is, that so, cannot and that be the case. Is, that is apparently invariable across um, a factor of 3,600 times <laughs> difference in the volume of the bladder. So when you compare the duration of urination for a house cat and an elephant, more or less the, the duration same. is the same. Okay. 
Can I just start with the fact that I am so disturbed there are that many videos on YouTube that you could use I know, I know. for this study? I know. And second of all, I would venture to guess most of them are cats. No, no, not at all. That's, not at all. The internet is just a vehicle to watch cat videos. My favorite part of this article are the acknowledgments. <laughs> oh, boy. Because they, they acknowledge every, contrib- every YouTube contributor to their oh, study, kidding. including Demon Dragon 115, <laughs> <laughs> Crazy Boy 35. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and then the only other thing I want to say is that um, this paper, uh, this, this project was supported by a National Science Foundation faculty early career nice. development program. Very nice. Wow. We learned a lot from that. Wow. that 21 is seconds, actually plus or minus 13 seconds. I wow. am going to time myself that's from now on. Standard deviation, is it? Yeah. yeah that's great. All right. Well, that's that a, is... That's a deviant standard. That is oh, concerning. Gosh. All right, Chris, what do you got for us? I, I'm just wondering whether demon dragons are mammals. No. That was the, that was the the moniker for the YouTube person. Oh, was it? Uh, uh, okay. Well, you've got me beat, Matt, uh, Don. I can't come close to that. But no, I, who but can? I did try. This is a shout out to all the chiropterologists out there who listen the, to our show. The chi chi what? The, the chiropterologists, the people who study bats. Oh. Okay. Um, and I, oh, I bats thought I would, are so cool. I, they are cool. And I thought I, I would I would uh, also subtitle this the the Rosetta Stone. Rosetta being a genus of bat, the the Egyptian fruit bat, to be okay. precise. So there is exactly one person out there who knows what you're talking about. And since we only have two listeners, <laughs> they are not one of them. So I was either a vampire or Batman. There you go. Oh, I was there. You go. Uh, um, on the web today, trying to find a, a cool article to do for our, our funny science, and I saw this great video. Amazing. On, and amusing. Wacky and science. Wow, wacky science. I think it was amazing and amusing. Like, it was either on like PNAS or it was on science. I can't remember, but it was a video of bats crashing into um, Wait uh, a minute. aluminum plates that had been hung up in various places to prove that the bat echolocation process requires a rough surface, that if it's a very smooth surface, they whack into it like a mirror. They can't because the, the oh, that's cool. Cool. has to this be on the back They set that up as an experiment? Yeah. That's they, really they, cruel. They put that them is... in houses and caves and also mean. like in the trees near their caves. And the bats would go whacking into them every time. They can't see them that using echolocation. Cool. Oh, I think Pat didn't because, need to uh, get after those guys. The, um, yeah, yeah. The, the sound, that's instead cool. of like hitting a roughage and bouncing back, it just, it just deflects. Anyway. Um, that's not the study you brought. That's not the study Got I brought. It. The study I brought was was about a a re uh, a redesignation of the phylogeny of big bats and little bats in regards to their echolocation. Now, previously, the world of bats had been br- split into the mega chiroptera, the big bats, which are like. Flying foxes. Do you have any idea what he's talking about? No idea. And the microchiroptera, which are like all the other bats that you see. And the microchiroptera universally have echolocation, and the megachiroptera almost always do not, with one exception, which is the Rosettus bat, the Egyptian fruit bat. Are they also blind, the big ones? Uh, no, they have excellent eyesight, in fact, and they, they tend to hunt at dusk and so they eat fruit. So we can't say blind is a bat anymore. They're not blind. They have excellent eyesight and they, they, they find their fruit trees and they eat them by visual identification. Now, the issue for the bat people is where did echolocation disappear in the evolution of bats? Because you've got this, this the mega chiroptera, the fruit bats and the flying foxes, who are what? who do not have echolocation, <laughs> but then, except yours? for this yes. one, the Rosetta's bat, which does. <laughs> yes, and but the way that the Rosetta's bat has echolocation is fundamentally different from the way that all of the microchiroptera bats do. So the microchiropteran bats create their click sounds by making sort of like 
sounds in their throats in sort of a, it's a laryngeal click whereas the the rosetta spat makes clicking sounds with its tongue like that so it's a totally different mechanism of making high-pitched noises which evolutionary suggests that this was a a reacquisition of um of echolocation as a as a, a second way to acquire echolocation that these are genetically very different pathways but they both reached the same endpoint but then they did all these molecular analyses looking at the dna and they found that there's this species of bat in the microchiroptera the clicky bats that um uh has a weak echolocation uh, that also comes from the larynx that means like sounds in the back of its throat um, but genetically is closer closer aligned to the megachiroptera and should be in that family, meaning that we now have a third pathway to echolocation. Or that the, the this, which is called the, um, what is the name of this? It's the horseshoe bat. Horseshoe bat. Because it's got this, this curious apparatus on its nose that looks like a series of, of like peacock, uh, of uh, chicken combs uh-huh. that it uses to direct its clicks. Um, and it has a this is a it has a much inferior way of generating its echolocation compared with a microchiroptera, but genetically it's closer to the megachiroptera, and so it looks like this may be like the echo, either a, 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 a second reacquisition of of echolocation on the mega side, or that this is on the pathway to losing its echolocation because it's a fruit bat and actually doesn't need to see at night because it's not hunting for insects. Huh. And I thought this was really interesting, fascinating. Wow. Well done. I like it. I Bats, they're so cool. Gonna have you explain that to me again after the show. Yeah, you know, have you ever read about all the pathogens that are generated in bats because of their body temperature? No. What? Yeah, yeah. Like we a... can talk about that next time. No, but the, the number of odd pathogens like Ebola oh, and yeah, Lassa yeah. fever and all the rest of the that come from bats is, is because of their body temperature. In part because of their body temperature, yeah. And in wow. fact, it's the Rosetta spat that's implicated as the Ebola vector. Is that right? Yeah, wow. yeah the, the uh, Egyptian fruit bat. Fascinating. Absolutely <laughs> fascinating. I think if you, you I, all I want to say is <laughs> both of you have been so true to your natures and what you brought in, and I'm going to do the exact same because, as you guys know, I love statues, uh, right? No, no, I love, I love Easter eggs in writing. So I love uh, when people just throw in weird stuff into their scientific publications. And so this one. It's a it's a really short one. It comes from the um, the uh, uh, Princeton professor Harry Frankfurt, who wrote the uh, book on. Well, I'm not allowed to say the word, so we'll just say on BS or no BS. What is BS? BS is a term <laughs> term that people sometimes use for baloney, or I think the term was malarkey uh, was thrown around. <laughs> You know what I'm referring to. It's not to. nearly as satisfying to say, no, it is however. Not. All right, all right. It just doesn't have the same punch. I tell you what, when this is over, I'm going to let you say it over <laughs> and over and over <laughs> until you get out of your system. And so he wrote this this really wonderful uh, book on BS, um, which begins, one of the most salient features of our culture is that there is so much BS. Everyone knows this. Each of us contributes his share, but we tend to take the situation for granted. And then he writes this whole long book about the story of BS and why we use it and all those things. But the the very first uh, page of it contains this sentence. Even the most basic and preliminary questions about BS remain, after all, not only unanswered, but unasked. So far as I am aware, very little work has been done on the subject. 
I have not undertaken a survey of the literature, partly because I do not know how to go about it. <laughs> I just love the... Oh, that sounds like BS. <laughs> I just love the honesty. That's excellent. Yeah. I just love it. Well, that is the end of our program. If you have any feedback on this or any other episodes, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at PopHealthEx. That's at PopHealthEx. So we've got some really great news for the podcast fans. Uh, we've now hit just about 1,000 downloads, and we are looking to expand the podcast. And to do that, we want to get your feedback. So we have set up a, a survey uh, that you can find on our webpage. So go to PopHealthEx.org slash FA, or just go to our page on the PopHealthEx.org website. Uh, and we're hoping that we can get some feedback so that we can really build the podcast and make it better to respond to the, the issues and things that you all are really interested in. We want to thank uh, Leslie Talian, Director of Lifelong Learning at Boston University School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you download the next episode. Mm-hmm.